This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Established by the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010, cross-agency priority goals, CAP goals, are a tool used by the federal government to accelerate progress on a limited number of presidential priority areas, where implementation requires active collaboration between multiple agencies, overcoming organizational barriers to achieve better performance than one agency can achieve on its own. Set or revised at least every four years, CAP goals include outcome-oriented goals that cover a limited number of cross-cutting policy areas, as well as management goals focused on management improvement across the federal government. Today, I will explore the importance of cross-agency collaboration in general and progress made on a handful of specific CAP goals with my colleague, John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Right. So uh, before we delve into our exploration of a handful of cross-agency priority goals, John, would you tell us more about the Government Performance and Results Modernization Act, the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010? What does it require of each major agency? Well, the law basically takes best practices that developed over the years and put some of them into law and then also developed some new ones. Uh, The 1993 original GPRA law uh, laid out a a series of requirements for agencies and some of them didn't work. Uh, And and so, for example, one of the things – and I helped draft that law when I was at GAO back in in the early 90s – is we thought that agencies – should have some flexibility as to how long they should prepare their strategic plan for three to five years. So it wouldn't necessarily be tied to the political regime that uh, was in power at the time. And it turns out that that was naive, that you really need to tie the strategic plans to the priorities of the administration there. And so the law was changed so that all agency strategic plans are refreshed each presidential term. So every four years, instead of giving agencies some flexibility. So the incoming administration will be the first one that will benefit from this. And so what they'll be able to do is have all agency strategic plans refreshed. They have a year to do it. So the first year in office, they'll be developing these strategic plans with their new leadership and their new priorities. And then they'll all go into uh, effect uh, basically in February of 2018 as part of the president's submission of his FY19 budget. 
But in addition to the uh, agency strategic plans, one of the other things that we learned is that when we drafted the original law in 93, we thought that agencies' annual operating plans would be derived from the agency strategic plans. But it turns out that many agencies place those requirements in different shops. And so the annual operating plans or annual performance plans didn't necessarily tie back to the strategic plans. The new law requires a tie, a link, which I think is reasonable. Um, the other thing is, is that OMB is uh, required to do an assessment of agency progress against the plan. It was in the past, just the plans uh, the, would be completed at the end of the year, an annual performance report. There would be no assessment of, well, did you do well or not? And agencies didn't self-assess. So there, there's a little more accountability and Christmas in, in the new law. The other thing that's interesting that, that was a, a, an Obama administration um, initiative was for each agency to identify among their strategic plans and goals some priorities. So it's like three to five priorities that they would focus on and that there would be government-wide cross-agency priorities as well. These were embedded into law. So today there's 16 cross-agency priority goals and about 99 agency-specific uh, agency priority goals, uh, and they have to be reviewed on a quarterly basis and their progress reported on a centralized website. So that's all kind of new that the new president will will inherit. The other thing is that it codified some best practices like chief operating officers, which are for most agencies, their deputy secretary, the creation of performance improvement officers, which was a Bush innovation uh, that was now placed into law, the Performance Improvement Council, again, a Bush administration uh, initiative, and it's now into law. So so that sort of uh, is what the Government Performance Results Modernization Act does. Mm -hmm. So you kind of hinted at what a cross-agency priority goal is. Um, if you want to elaborate on that, that'd be great. But more importantly, are these goals set in stone or can they be dropped and replaced depending on who's, whose administration is running well, the well, government? The, the Agency priority goals are two-year goals. The cross-agency priority goals are four-year goals. So they're coterminous with a presidential term. So each incoming – and so, again, Trump will be the first one to be able to craft new uh, cross-agency priority goals. There's currently 16. And the law says that a certain number of them – or certain types of them have to be mission support related – sort of like, you know, HR or IT or financial management. And then the rest can be mission-oriented or policy-oriented. And uh, this was sort of developed or inspired by the Tony Blair uh, initiative in the UK. Uh, he had something called the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit, and they developed cross-agency or government-wide priority goals and they initially did a lot, like maybe 30 or so, and found that was too many. So they reduced it to a much smaller number, and that was sort of a lesson for the U.S., so that it was a much smaller number. And it wasn't just that, but also one of our authors that we've had, Don Kettle, you've had him on the show before, says that, that in the U.S., a lot of things that are significant – reach across agency boundaries, significant policy problems reach across agency boundaries, and there was no statutory mechanism to work across agency boundaries very neatly. Uh, 
And so this law creates that capacity that no president's had before. So this is, again, for the new president, an opportunity to do some uh, some interesting things. Currently, the IBM Center has a, um, a report that's under development of a similar system in New Zealand. And uh, it'll be interesting to compare and contrast the lessons they've developed over the – they've done theirs for about five years, what their lessons are compared to what ours will be. Yeah, and I, the reason why I wanted to bring – I think this is an important discussion around the importance of collaboration, cross-agency collaboration. And, and you've done a series of blogs, which really sort of inspired me to have you come on. And uh, the first one is the customer you, – you, you explored the progress being made. Uh, under five of the 16, I believe, uh, cross-agency priority goals. And my hope is that I can do more. You're going to do more. <clears throat> so the first one I want to talk about is the customer service cap goal. Um, you begin your analysis, if you will, uh, with a story about mailing a bike. Perhaps you can talk about that and, and kind of tie it into a, an interesting point you make uh, at, at the end of your story, is the distinction between service and experience. Yeah. And this is something that's sort of evolved or learned from the private sector over the the past few years. Um, when I was involved in doing reinventing government back in the early 1990s, uh, there was a major initiative around customer service. It was to create service standards that was inspired by the British uh, customer standards uh, initiatives uh, that they had. And... What we found was that setting standards ultimately didn't produce the kind of change that we wanted. So what we did is we then shifted to, to focusing on uh, customer satisfaction. So instead of a, a numerical quantitative of thing that could be observed, it was more perceptual, a customer service surveys, et cetera. That sort of tampered down during the course of the Bush administration, but sort of uh, ramped back up in the Obama administration. Uh, but the story that I had or experience that I had was that this past summer, I uh, helped my son move to California and we were in a vacation hotel and he wanted his bike. And so we had it mailed to the hotel, U.S. Postal Service. But instead of getting the bike at the hotel, we got a note from the postman saying, you know, it's too big to fit in my truck. You need to come to the post office and pick it up. Well, among when I first tried to figure this one out, I was like, well, where is the post office? And it turns out that in that postal code, there were three post offices. I didn't know which one it was at. So I dialed the 1-800 number and had the experience that many people do, which is uh, it says that we're, you're a very important customer to us and we'll be with you shortly. And after 40 minutes, I finally got somebody. And they were actually very helpful. And they said, that, you know, the bike isn't at any of those three post offices. It's in another postal code. Here it is. Here's the address. Here's the number. Very helpful. Very knowledgeable. It took me 40 minutes to get it, but I was able to, to, to track it down. So I would say that the service, which is the transaction, was very good because I got what I needed. The experience of being online, of not knowing which of the three post offices it was at, et cetera, the experience wasn't good. And so today in the private sector, they're measuring not just 
customer service interaction, but rather the whole experience. And and that's something that is beginning to uh, blend into what the federal government is doing. And you use the story very cleverly to introduce the federal government's focus on more effectively serving citizens. And uh, could you tell us more about uh, President Obama's uh, 2011 executive order that requires agencies to develop customer service plans. The executive orders always direct agencies to do something within <laughs> 60, 90, 120 days or something, and, and they produce plans. Mm-hmm. And some of the agency plans were good. Some of them were mediocre. I mean, GAO went and looked at them and found that some of them, you know, just really didn't result in much change at all. But by Obama's second term, they decided to double down on this. They didn't give up on it. And so they designated customer service as one of the 16 cross-agency priority goals. A OMB official and an agency, acting agency head uh, from Social Security, uh, were the co-leaders of this, which made a good deal of sense. And, and then what they did is they created a... And much like what we did in reinventing government is we found that trying to to improve customer service across the entire government was just too amorphous. So we identified 30 what we were calling high-impact agencies, those that had the most interaction with the public. And that's what the second-term Obama initiative did is they identified what they called – uh, core federal services. So it was the service, not the agency, that was a unit of analysis. And so they identified 30 services in 16 agencies. And that was where their focus of attention was. And so they created a, a core services uh, uh, council and uh, they convened the people from these 16 agencies. So, so rather than trying to focus on plans across all the agencies, they focused on how can we help these 16 agencies improve these 30 services. So you, you mentioned the Core Federal Services Council and how it helped to push the effort along. The, the goal leaders in the council outlined uh, four overarching strategies and undertaken a series of cross-agency initiatives Mm -hmm. for each of these strategies. Uh, Would you kind of give us a sense of those four cross-agency strategies? Sure, sure. I mean, that was kind of what was neat is is there was a coherence. It wasn't develop a plan. It was here's four things that we're going to try to achieve together. So one of them was identifying the 30 core services uh, that touch a significant number of citizens or businesses, for example, issuing passports or IRS's online tax filing or patent approvals or the TSA's airport screening programs, things that touch Americans where they can see their government in action. The second was to develop around for these a uh, set of standards, practices, and tools, sort of like what can you do? They developed jointly, for example, a, a maturity assessment model uh, that they used, and they self-assessed to figure out where they were at, and then the leaders within these 30 uh, services got together to develop what they call journey maps, which is done in the private sector, mm-hmm. to figure out what is the experience that a, a uh, service user has when they use that service. So for the first time, they're methodically using uh, uh, private sector tools to uh, apply them to these 30 services. Mm-hmm. The third uh, major strategy was to get some feedback and have some transparency. So uh, they piloted in six agencies or six of these 30 services 
um, the use of a feedback button, much like um, you would use uh, on like Yelp or something like that. And uh, the idea was to have some feedback for the agencies, but also transparency to the public so they could sort of see how does the experience that I had uh, compared with with other people. And then finally, it was to focus on the frontline employees. I mean, that's really where services occur. And so the administration created a customer service award uh, that would go annually to uh, individuals as well as to uh, units. Uh, and and I was uh, privileged to serve as a, a judge for in 2015 and uh, this past year. You know, uh, there are concrete short-term initiatives underway, and you highlight some of them in your uh, in your post. Um, would you outline some of the agency initiatives that you highlight? I think the one was the Federal Student Aid, Social Security Administration, and the Passport Service. Um, in each of these three cases, I had the uh, chance to, to chat with the people that were actually running these things. Um, in student aid, they created a customer experience office to improve the end user experience, the end user being the student. Uh, what they found when they created this office and began looking at the process from a student's perspective, there wasn't this one-on-one relationship with them. The, rather, there was this ecosystem of providers. The, there was the servicers, the financial people, the universities. There were different divisions within student aid that handled different parts of the ecosystem like financial literacy or marketing or applications for aid and payments. And so there were all these different websites. And, and it was like not good to have students have to figure out how the bureaucracy worked and navigate it. So what this uh, customer experience office did is it brought people from the different divisions across student aid into a central unit and about 100 people or so. And they were the ones that that redesigned the whole experience, created a single website, and so that, that they integrated the, the pieces from all the different operating divisions. So for student aid, it was creating this customer experience for the students that made sense. In the case of Social Security, they realized that they need to move more online from uh, an, a, a uh, in-person uh, experience. And in fact, already half of Social Security's claims are being filed online. But what they wanted to do was create a um, service, what they're calling customer engagement tools, that looked at the entire life cycle of individuals' interactions with Social Security because you, they have your birth certificate and they have your death certificate. They have the, the entire range of experiences and stuff. So what their uh, hope is, is that by looking at this from the life cycle approach, that they'll be able to create a portal that in some cases will be able to predict uh, when you're going to retire and start sending you stuff in advance as opposed to you having to file uh, for Social Security. They're going to already have a package ready for you when uh, you become eligible. Uh, they've created a My Social Security portal, which provides uh, customers with access to different services and online, like replacing your Social Security card if you lost it or something like that, change of address, uh, replacement of Medicare cards, etc. And the third agency that talked to the passport, uh, they were one of the ones that's testing these feedback buttons, of the Yelp, Yelp review type things. They actually have buttons as you leave the office that are like the, the big buzzer buttons that you press whether it was I satisfied, red, green, or yellow type stuff. But I mean, it looks kind of cheesy, but the 
people that run the office have da- real-time data as to what's sure. going on in in uh, the, the line and then citizen. And so they're able to quickly readjust or, 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 or respond to this stuff. John, you mentioned the four-year cycle for cross-agency priority goals ends in September of 2017, nine months into the Trump administration. So what do you think the Trump administration will do in this area uh, around improving the delivery of government services? Well, obviously, uh, President Trump has a business lens and customer satisfaction is something that I think is just part of his nature uh, in terms of doing business. I can't imagine them abolishing it. They may not emphasize it, at least initially. They may do a remix of, are these the right 30 services to be focusing on? But I think that the governance structure that's been set up, the other thing that's happened with this law that I was mentioning is that there was money that was set aside to be used centrally to help fund and support these 16 initiatives. And so Congress, only this past March, provided a pot of funding to be able to support this. Parallel to that, the president uh, a couple years ago uh, had a uh, uh, senior executive service reform initiative, and one of the elements of that was creating uh, an experience for people to work across agency boundaries. And so the first class of the White House Leadership Development Program wound up staffing each of the 16 cross-agency priority goals. So for the first time there was dedicated staff and dedicated funding for this. So it's not like when President Trump takes office that everything will be gone because these this is career people that will be in place to help move these initiatives along. Not unlike what happened when President Bush created performance improvement officers that were career executives that when the Obama administration came in, they just kept doing their stuff. And then the Obama administration adopted that and moved it to, uh, uh, to a legislative framework. What about cross-agency priority goal progress in category management and infrastructure permitting? We'll explore these questions and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What are the key priorities for HHS's OIG? What are the top management and performance challenges facing HHS? What are the characteristics of an effective inspector general? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Daniel Levinson, inspector general of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, your next um, priority goal that you uh, focused on was the Category Management Cross-Agency Priority Goal. Before we delve deep into that 
progress in that area. What is category management and how does it work? Well, category management is something that's actually uh, used extensively in the private sector uh, and by governments across the world to better manage their common purchases. So what it is is you define a clear strategy for spending on common items or services within a category. A category could be IT, it could be in human resources, it it can be real estate, it can be travel, etc. And within that category, you can, by tying things together, leverage better buying power uh, across that entire category by educating the buyers, which are in the individual agencies, with what are the best practices or the best prices and the best contract terms to use. And uh, you could reduce the total cost of ownership and other things like that. The, the UK has used this extensively as well as uh, um, major companies like our own. By moving to this approach, you wind up consulting, having fewer contracts, fewer variation, and you're able to uh, leverage the government's buying power in a way that you couldn't do before. Uh, some of the studies conservatively say you can have efficiencies of 75 to, to 12%. Some people say much higher. Uh, what's significant is that this is uh, based on, you know, something like $270 billion. So 12% is a big bucket of money, yeah. Um, there, one study said that the federal government could save up to $40 billion a year uh, if it moved widely and, and, and adopted this. So, so that's why the shift from strategic sourcing to category management and to rely on the experiences that have been developed uh, elsewhere have been very useful. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Federal Category Management Initiative and how it was launched and a little bit more about its um, governance aspects of the sure. effort? This was launched in, in uh, 2014 uh, when Ann Rung became the head of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. So. When she was confirmed by the Senate and took this role, this was sort of like her uh, key initiative. And it uh, was taken from just being a key initiative of hers to something that became a government-wide cross-agency priority goal. And so that lifted the the, uh, profile of this. And as a cross-agency priority goal, it receives uh, top-level attention on a quarterly basis from, like, the head of OMB and, and people in the White House. So this really put a lot of oomph behind it and created a category management leadership council, which was sort of derived from a, a strategic sourcing leadership council. And in addition, the CFOs from each of the 24 largest agencies were asked to designate a single point of contact. So you have this council, you have these contacts, single points of contact in each of the major agencies to coordinate the government-wide efforts. What they, the council did is it identified 10 super categories that account for more than $270 billion worth of spending. And these are, you know, facility construction, travel, medical supplies, transportation, things that are being done in different agencies independently. And and a career executive uh, was designated as a uh, category manager for each one of the 10. And so these people developed a cadre of experts on what are the expertise that's needed for contract provisions, et cetera, around, say, facilities construction. 
and they identified key performance metrics so that these metrics could be used across agency boundaries. And they talked to the top suppliers in each of these categories to find out what was sort of the coming next and so they could be ready. And this is much more uh, expertise than could be developed individually by each agency. So the agencies can now turn to these 10 categories. And within the 10 categories, there's a total of 50 subcategories that uh, have their own leads and have their own sets of experts uh, that serve as executive agencies that may buy on behalf of other agencies and the category. And, and in addition, GSA created on its website something called the Acquisition Gateway, which is a one-stop source for procurement contract officials within the government to find out what's going on in each of these 50 or top 10 categories, who are the experts, what are the contract terms that I should be using, who are the best suppliers and buyers. And, and so what it does is it creates this, this um, expertise that, that uh, reaches across agency boundaries that never existed before. So, you know, some people, it may not be glamorous work, oh, but no. w- what's next in this area, no. do you think? Before uh, Anne Rung left, she sent out a draft circular that would institutionalize the use of category management across the government. I don't know whether that ever was finalized, and, and I think that that could well be uh, an initiative that the incoming administration may want to pay attention to, because by uh, institutionalizing it, it then becomes this is the way the government does business. It's not just a one-off initiative. John, why does it take an estimated six years for major infrastructure projects to get moving? And why is the different statutory requirements challenging and sometimes result in uncertainty? Well, interestingly, the, the previous two examples that we talked about were examples of uh, mission support. This one is an example of mission delivery. It is, this is core to what the Corps of Engineers does, what the uh, Department of Transportation does. A, a number of agencies support the construction of things. So, so this is, uh, is a big deal. The other thing that's kind of significant is that President Trump has talked about the importance of investing in infrastructure. And so uh, what Hopefully, there'll be this experience. So that it, what happened in, in 2009 when the Recovery Act was passed, there were a number of infrastructure projects in there. And the president quickly found that they weren't able to have things that were shovel-ready because there were all these requirements and regulations uh, that uh, were in place. Over the years, there have been a number of requirements for permitting and, and permission to, to do major infrastructure projects. And there's 35 sets of permitting and review responsibilities across 18 different agencies now. And this is just at the federal level. That doesn't talk about state or local uh, equivalent kinds of permits. And the thing that happened historically and that the Obama administration came up face-to-face with was there was no coordinating mechanism across these 35 statutes or regulations or the 18 agencies. This was left up to whoever was doing the construction project to figure out. And so what the Obama administration early on when they were trying to get money out through the Recovery Act said, we need to have some sort of coordination mechanism, which the states and localities have been talking and industry that have been doing the construction have been talking about for years. So that was the the start of all of this. So 
what are the benefits? Uh, what benefits can be realized by simply reducing the review process for major infrastructure projects? Well, there's an advocacy group called Common Good that claims that there's a six-year delay in major construction projects that cost the nation $3.7 trillion in just because of the delay, because if it takes something that could be done in one year and it takes 10 years or six years or whatever to complete it, uh, then this is unnecessary costs that are in- incurred. Um, what's interesting is that Civil engineers say that the total cost of infrastructure deficit is $1.7 trillion. So the cost of delay is more than the cost of actually delivery uh, of what needs to be done. So this group recommends cutting the review process to two years by streamlining, okay. which is a code word for some advocacy groups as you're going to cut my uh, particular regulation that protects the environment or historical structures or whatever it might be, uh, the environment or something. So the initiative that the Obama administration undertook is we're not going to reduce the requirements. We're just going to coordinate them. And they concluded that if they coordinated without eliminating regulations, that you could go from six years to three years. So that gets you pretty much a long way where uh, the this uh, this common good group was saying, oh, it needs to be two years, and you needed to cut all these regulations. So so the effort was let's not try to put up roadblocks of just stream uh, of improving. So that's why they don't want to call it streamlining because that seems to be the code word for cutting regulations, <laughs> uh, but ra- or, or short circuiting them. But rather, it's how do you just uh, Im- Im- modernize is what they're talking about. Yeah, and I want to get into some of the. Um ways they measure this. So what is the Federal Infrastructure Permitting Dashboard and how was it used as a tool? How has it been expanded? Well, what what happened was, again, back in the 2009 uh, effort, they were sort of doing one-off, how do we improve this project? How, and there were about 50 projects that they were trying to track. And so they they put them all into a single dashboard so you could track them all in one place. And the president in 2011 signed this directive that led to piloting of this uh, uh, infrastructure permit dashboard that tracked progress on on specific projects. So that was basically the start. The next thing that happened is that based on the lessons from the pilot projects, the president in 2012 signed an executive order that expanded the use of of the dashboard for additional projects and and different kinds of things. Uh, So it includes rails and waterways and roads and renewable energy uh, projects and stuff like that. And and, and then in 2013, there was another presidential directive. So there's just – there has to be – constant pressure from the top to get these 18 agencies to work together. And in that directive, he created the steering committee to come up with a plan for how, in the long term, so instead of dealing with everything on one-off heroic efforts, they were going to create a systemic approach to do this as a way of doing business in the government as opposed to one-offs for each different project. Could you tell us more about efforts to move to a more systematic approach in this area? And where I'm going with this is what's the role or how did 
legislation help that? Like the Fixing America's Service Transportation Act uh, of uh, 2015, how did that factor in in making this effort more systematic? Well, again, from the one-off to this plan, and by the time the plan had been developed, the legislation okay. was passed. And so there was this convergence between the two that – or alignment between the two that really worked off well. And it was created as a cross-agency priority goal and then the legislation passed and then that created the capacity or authorized the creation of the capacity to be able to do this. So when Congress passed this uh, law, uh, it went from this steering group to a federal permit improvement council. So that was statutory, and it oversaw this cross-cutting uh, review process, and was composed of deputy secretary-level members. So, and, and an executive director that's appointed by the president. And so, there's named participating agencies in this law, and each agency has to have a chief environmental review and permitting officer. So that for each one of these thirteen agencies, there's now a single point of contact or accountability. And so you have the council that's made up of the deputy secretaries and you have these single points of contact within the agency. For the first time, you're beginning to get some, some uh, governance coherence on this. And they, uh, the law also expanded the uh, range of infrastructure projects that could be included like energy generation and manufacturing and stuff like that. Uh, and, and it also created an authority to collect fees to pay for this cross-agency coordination effort. Uh, and and so that's and it helps pay for the the permits and the reviews so you can speed them up. In a way, this is not unlike what happened in the Food and Drug Administration years ago, where industry was saying the re- review process was so slow. The Congress came back and said, "Okay, well, we're going to impose a fee that will pay for the additional speeding up of the process by having a more capacity." What is the uh, Federal Permitting Improvement Council and how does it seek to alleviate some of the issues surrounding the permitting of major infrastructure well, projects? Th- this council was created in the law mm-hmm. and uh, it was given funding of $4.5 million and a staff to be able to do this. And Richard Kidd was a de- was nominated or selected by the president to serve as the executive director of this. And what he has actually done is he's gone on site to where these major construction projects like the Tappan Zee Bridge or you know, whatever the kinds of major construction projects are to talk with the state and local people as well as the construction people to get a firsthand understanding of what's going on. So he's able to, to uh, tie some of this stuff back and have staff feedback. So there's an ongoing dialogue and there's a face now to here's the single point of contact for the federal government for this project, as opposed to having to go to a dozen agencies or so. So uh, each of the major projects ha- are, that are now on this dashboard that, that had been created earlier, they have 60 days to develop a um, coordinated project plan and post the project plans timelines on the dashboard so the public can see what the progress is and where the, the hangups are. And uh, so now there's this governance structure, there's the legal authority, there's an implementation plan, there's funding, there's an executive director. All these things are in place. So as the new administration comes in and wants to talk about infrastructure, there's now the capacity in the federal government to actually respond in a coherent way. That's an interesting way. So what, what do you think is next? What are some of the challenges facing 
the Trump presidency in this area? And what path should they take going forward? Well, it's not just the Trump presidency, but OMB, when they, they got this, this all this stuff put in place, and then they started looking at it, found that there were no data or timelines for projects in the various review. So part of this is establishing data standards and metrics, et cetera, to track the project review timelines. And this sounds mundane, but if you look at uh, cross-agency, just between the Veterans Administration and the Housing and Urban Development Administration, when they were trying to deal with veterans' homes, it took them almost a year to agree as to what a homeless veteran was for the metric so they could measure progress. Here, you're dealing with over a dozen agencies and with all different kinds of projects, whether it was waterways or solar or highways, et cetera. So developing these metrics is is not an a inconsequential task, and it's something that's going to face the incoming administration, and it's not going to be... Uh, a glamorous thing. It's just really getting down on the weeds. But if you're going to invest a trillion dollars into infrastructure, this is some of the, the grunt work that needs to be done in advance. What is the Shared Services Cross-Agency Priority Goal? We'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. So, John, the next cross-agency priority goal I want to talk about is the one dedicated to shared services. And again, like we've done with the other uh, cross-agencies, I want to get some context. And so what is shared services? And perhaps you can provide some context as to its evolution within the federal government. This is something that, again, is done in the commercial world uh, extensively. And in the federal government, it's been through a number of iterations and called different things over the past two or three or four decades in some cases. Uh, probably the earliest uh, example is uh, shared payroll services that the Department of Agriculture uh, offers it it does the payroll processing for a number of agencies and they started this like back in 1973 just for the different units within the Department of Agriculture and they've since extended to that service to other federal agencies the idea of shared services is when agencies move their common administrative functions to somebody else and they just pay them for for doing this this could be done by another agency it could be done in the private sector 
Uh, the Bush administration was strongly ad- advocating it being done in the private sector, and there was a lot of pushback by unions. But this is being done commonly now within the federal government. But they were, again, these were one-offs. There was no systematic uh, uh, approach to it. Um, in a, a study by the Partnership for Public uh, Service back in 2015, um, they looked at the history of this. Uh, back in the 1990s, when we were doing reinventing government, we had something called franchise funds. In the early 2000s, the Bush administration care, created something called lines of business. So this notion of having common services provided by a central provider uh, or a common provider is uh, something that's evolved over the years. The concern, at least in the reinventing government days, was you don't want to centralize into one provider because then you're creating a monopoly. But if you have several providers, then there is some trade-off. But there's also uh, you don't have a, a, the uh, case of single points of failure. So you have it creates some redundancy is actually good. Complete efficiency can can uh, be problematic. Uh, that's risk management. <laughs> but anyway, in uh, uh, 2014, shared services was designated as a top management priority goal, a cross-agency priority goal by the Obama administration. And so there's been a lot of attention to this. And the Office of Federal Financial Management and the Office of Management and Budget has been sort of the key champion of this along with the General Services Administration. Yeah, so you know, uh, you kind of hinted at this, but what what were some of the trends that prompted the use of shared services, and what are some of the key obstacles to realizing the benefit of shared services? One of the things is is that agencies have been historically reluctant to give up something that is core to their being able to get stuff done. You know, if you want to make sure your employees get paid, or you want to make sure that there's the their ability to to do the travel that's associated with their work, uh, and and you want to make sure they're promotions are, are processed on time through the HR system. So agencies want to make sure that, that you know, this is something that they had some control over. But if you stand back and look at it from the bigger picture, they don't have their own electrical systems. They don't have their own water supply systems. They don't have their own internet systems. They use what's out there. And so the goal is to sort of get agencies to stop thinking about, I need to own this, to I need to be able to have access to this. And so that's kind of where where this has been going. And part of the push on this is that the cost and uh, the budget constraints that agencies are facing and the cost of some of these services mm-hmm. is becoming unsustainable. And the technology is uh, to the point where there's a lot more confidence that you can let somebody else do this because the technology and the processes uh, exist, and like cloud services. And and the uh, the and the third thing is that there's a loss of uh, administrative talent in a lot of these agencies as people begin aging out. Is they're not being replaced with other people; they're being replaced largely with computers or uh, technology. Uh, so, so these different trends have sort of pushed agencies more in the direction of seeing shared services as something not to be afraid of, but rather to embrace. And, and sort of how has OMB sort of got involved in making this a reality? What, uh, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit more about its overarching governance framework. Mm-hmm. How does it serve both the executive champion of an initiative as well as the convener of stakeholders to create a standardized approach? Well, in this case, uh, Dave Mater, who's the controller, who's the, the head of the Office of Federal uh, Financial Management at, at OMB, he's been a key champion. He was brought in 
from the uh, outside government. Pre- previously, he was a high-ranking uh, career official in uh, the IRS. So he knows why it's important to own certain processes and stuff. But he's also been in the private sector and seen that, you know, you actually can let go. You don't need to run these things yourself. They're not core to your mission. They are something that are, you, you need to have access to to get your mission done, but you don't need to do it yourself. And he talked about his experience of, of worrying about payroll in Cleveland for the IRS. He says, that's the last thing I want to be focused on, but it's really important to the people who live in Cleveland. So, you know, so he's he's seen this, this experience from, from both ends. Um, but what uh, he took this on, much like Ann Rung took on category management, he took on shared services as a, a key initiative that he's been promoting. And it's now gotten to the point that, that like he likes to say, this is no longer a pet project. It's going to scale. And this is how the government's going to do business from now on, which is, you know, the right approach. It's not just some boutique thing to be doing off on the side. It's do this big scale. The first agency that's actually done this for an entire department is the Department of Housing and Urban Development, financial management. So full departments, not just little units here and there, are taking this on. But what he's done is much like Ann Rung has done or much like the infrastructure, he created a governance council that reaches across agency boundaries. It's called the Shared Services Governance Board. It sets policy. And in the General Services Administration, there's a unified shared services management office that does the staffing and and that does the the brokering of of agreements and setting the metrics and and all this sort of stuff. Instead of having in what happened earlier is that there would be a separate governance uh, structure for financial and grants management, a separate one for human resources, separate one for information systems security, et cetera. And they would have to develop the policies and best practices independently of each other. And so what this does is it allows you to, to each one of those separate lines of business still exist, but there's now like a home for them to turn to a champion for them that is headed by OMB and GSA to provide them the leverage and and the uh, capacity and the depth that they need. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that office is uh, is run by uh, Beth Angerman right now, right? Right. So and she's I, been on your show. Well, not yet, but I did want to talk to you about some of the work or uh, support they provide the office. What kind of policy guidance uh, could you tell us about the playbooks they create? And what about the performance management framework, the provider stat? So what kind of policy guidance, what's the playbook, and how do they measure whether they're getting to where they want to be? Well, the the measuring where they want to get to be is done for each of the six different areas. Uh, but what this does is it provides a framework so that all six areas have the same common approach to it, and they don't have to develop it on their own. So basically, one of the things in the policy guidance, for example, is how do you migrate from where you are now to a shared service? Mm -hmm. And that's going to vary depending on different agencies, but at least now there's a process, and you can look at it, and you can compare how does my agency shift uh, from internally provided payroll to uh, payroll provided by shared service, and how do you make that transition work? Uh, the other is is uh, giving a voice to customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just 
uh, the service provider, but also the customer that has to be able to have uh, a voice in what's going on. Because if it's not working for the customer, this isn't the right thing to do. Um, the framework outlines best practices for migration, et cetera. The playbook is sort of how do you do this. Mm -hmm. There's 30 agencies that are going, going through a system or service migration of one sort of another. So what OMB has done is they basically said, we're not going to allow you to upgrade your own financial management system. You need to – without at least considering uh, a shared service. You have to actively consider this. You can't just automatically just say, I need you know to go from – 6.1 to 6.2 uh, in, in my um, HR system or something. The provider stat is, an, uh, is a way of looking across all of the different service providers and seeing the, what the progress is. So there's this like internal dashboard that assesses the maturity of the capabilities of the various providers as well as the needs of the uh, different agencies. And there's some transparency. So the agencies that are purchasing services, they can see what it is that they're buying and how it compares to what other agencies are getting. They've also uh, completed as part of the benchmarking uh, initiative, a customer survey that quantifies the quality of service that are being provided by the different shared services providers. So, for example, in the case of payroll, there's not one provider but four. But it's down from like over 40 several years ago. So, But you don't want to go probably less than, than four because then you wind up into a, a monopoly situation. Yeah. I mean, would you tell us more about the different models for how shared services are organized and delivered? Yeah, there, there's not any one approach, uh, which I thought was it was interesting. Uh, and this is, comes out of some of the studies that the Partnership for Public Services has done. Um, there's basically four models. Uh, some provide multiple mission support services, but only inside their own agency. Another is uh, some provide multiple mission support agencies, but allow other agencies to purchase from them. A third is where they uh, uh, shared service focuses only on a single line of business like payroll or finance or human resources, and they only provide that to a range of agencies. And then finally, uh, and it's less common, but but there's more opportunity, is a shared service focusing on the delivery of missions, uh, uh, mission delivery. Uh, one example might be uh, benefits determination for you know the, you can uh, benefits determination process would be it varies between veterans benefits and Social Security disability benefits, but the notion of a process around. Uh, benefit determination, and it, that could be immigration supports, et cetera. So there's, there's some commonalities that in the future uh, might be uh, considered, but right now are, are very uh, uncommon. So, you know, you, uh, OMB sponsored a report in late 2015 uh, to develop an as-is baseline description of shared services initiatives in five areas. What are those five areas? But more importantly, what lessons were learned? Well, the, the study... Uh, Talked to, they, they talked to like 160 people in and like 26 different agencies to find their insights as what elements need to be in place and what would it take to actually go from a pilot project, project to, to scale. Uh, the five areas were information technology, human resources, acquisition or procurement, financial management, and grants management. And these link back to the major lines of business that, that uh, uh, the government's been looking at. Uh, some of the 
things uh, that came out of it was the importance of ensuring consistency, quality, and levels of service. I mean, that's what anybody wants if you're going to have a, a service provider. The other thing is they found that it was important not to have a point solution to a specific problem, but rather have an integrated solution that ties things together. So it's not just financial management or grants management, but it's sort of looking at how those tie together. And that, I thought, was kind of a, a, an interesting insight because it means that it's not just shared service for one thing, but rather a shared services environment. Uh, they found in the interviews that there was a value of standardizing administrative processes, uh, the need to define, decide up front what should or shouldn't be part of a shared service. For example, it might be appropriate to outsource repetitive things like payroll or um, leased auto fleet management or something, but keep in-house qualitative services like recruiting or clearances or something. So, so there is this distinction of what is core to your mission versus what uh, could be done commonly. The other is to focus more on outcome requirements, not on technical requirements. So it's not having necessarily Microsoft Word, 10 point, whatever, but rather that you need this particular kind of capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what they've done is they started with the results of the cross-agency benchmarking survey, and, which is another cap goal that I think we'll have a chance to talk about, and use that as a baseline for evaluating does this make sense and will it, is it cost-effective for me to move to a, a shared service environment? Well, there's been significant progress, as you point out, in recent years expanding the use of shared services. Some key challenges remain in order to take the shared services initiatives to scale. Could you outline some of them? Sure. I mean, one of the things is that there it doesn't exist the legislative authority to for a shared service provider sort of what we have what we would call retained earnings. And anyway, and basically it's money that you set aside to refresh your technology or in order to expand to uh, your, your services and functions. And in order to be able to go to scale, you need to be able to have that ability to charge your customers, current customers, for future services, not just for uh, the current services. Um, what's interesting is some, some studies have been done and found that basically 70% of what could be done to go to scale can be done administratively, but the other 30%, which is kind of crucial, would require some legislation. In fact, there is an um, an a advocacy group that's been created in the private sector to um, push for this. There, it's called the uh, Shared Services Leadership Coalition, and they're helping support the legislation uh, that would be needed to be able to to uh, go to scale on some of this stuff. So, John, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time today, but uh, this has been a very insightful conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in. You, you do have another uh, piece on another cross-agency priority goal on benchmarking and improving mission support functions. Uh, you can read all of your uh, blogs on the five, on your exploration of the five cross-agency priority goals four of which we discussed today at uh, businessofgovernment.org, uh, the Business of Government blog. John, thanks for coming in. I want to do this more often. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, this has been a great experience. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation on the importance of cross-agency priority goals with John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, 
I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the key priorities for HHS's OIG? What are the top management and performance challenges facing HHS? What are the characteristics of an effective inspector general? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Daniel Levinson, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.